0: To everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at veritasradio.com. I'm your host, Mel Bambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, well, welcome home. And if you wish to listen to tonight's full interview, just go back to our website, veritasradio.com, if you're not already there, and subscribe begin the year with the truth and if you want to declassify the secrets to your health and longevity and unlock your full potential for pennies a day, go to SanitizeRadio.com, sample a lot of the shows that we have there and if you like it and it makes a difference subscribe and to get in touch with me or if you want to be a guest on this radio program just go to the contact button of our website, I'd love to hear from you From the days of the American Revolution, the Jacobin-French Revolution, to the coalition wars against Napoleon, to Andrew Jackson's war on the Central Bank, to Karl Marx's war on sanity, the U.S. Civil War, to the red shocking wave of the 19th century assassinations, to the conspiratorial founding of the Federal Reserve, to the horrific First World War to enslave Germany, to the Rothschild-Communist subversion of Russia's Tsar, to the horrible world war against Hitler and Japan, to the Cold War, to the JFK assassination, to the women's movement, to the global warming hoax, to the fall of communism, to the 9-11 attacks and the war on terror. And finally, to the looming confrontation with Russia and China. The common thread of the New World Order crime gang links all these events together. At the heart of this self-perpetuating network sits the legendary house of Rothschild the true owners of Planet Earth, or don't we call it, Planet Rothschild. And to discuss all of this, tonight is a veteran of this show that requires no introduction. His website is tomatobubble.com. I'm glad to have, directly from the New York City area, private investigative researcher and journalist, Mike King, back of Veritas. Hello, Mike, and welcome back.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Mel. This is, what, our third go-around, I think?
0: I, I, I lost <laughs> count, because, you know, every time I have you on, it's something, although everybody has heard about the Rothschild, for example. I, uh, I just cannot believe that you have put so much into these two volumes. This must be your magnus opus, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right, Mel. I mean, this is, I mean, usually when I put a book out, Uh, I could, you know, immerse myself over a period of two to three months research, put together a solid 100 to 150 page concise volume. Uh, this was years in the making. I mean, it literally took me, uh, maybe a year and a half to two years to put together. And I mean, not working full time, but a steady effort. But even prior to that, this represents the synthesis of 15 to 20 years of, of just studying and everything I picked up all along the way uh, and had to figure out myself, which is not easy because I mean people who write about this stuff don't, don't always link it all together for you. You pick up bits and pieces. And, and what I sought to do with Planet Rothschild is to find that common thread and link together the last 250 years, uh, decade by decade. And as as you go through the pages of Planet Rothschild, the fingerprints of this family, that common thread that I'm talking about, becomes unmistakable. Uh, But this is the result indirectly of many, many years of studying this thing. Uh, But the good news is your readers don't have to spend that time. They can just uh, cuddle up with these two volumes over a, a period of uh, several hours over a few weeks, and they will acquire what I call the equivalent of a PhD in New World Order studies.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly what I thought when I was reading them. Planet Rothschild, The Forbidden History of the New World Order, Volumes 1 and 2. And usually when someone owns a piece of land, Mike, you know, they tend to name it. Do you think that instead of calling our planet, Planet Earth, it should be renamed to Planet Rothschild?
1: Well, you know, that that description would not be too far off the mark. I mean, certainly by this point in history, there are uh, some other powerful players in their own right who are uh, allied with the Rothschild. And we can only speculate if the house itself is still at the very pinnacle by themselves or if they're just part of the pinnacle. Uh, but there can be no doubt that without this family... Uh, this thing that we call the New World Order, this, this crime movement over the last 250 years would, could, could not have come into existence. It could not have achieved what it, what it has. Uh, they are the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Don Corleone of this thing. And, uh, it's just astonishing to, to see it decade after decade. I mean most people once they get past their own grandparents or great grandparents, they might not even know who their ancestors were. And here you have a two hundred and fifty year line um from the original patriarch to his son, to his sons and his son and his son. And to his day we see the big players they're still there on the scene. Matt Rothschild, Evelyn, Sir Evelyn the Rothschild, Sir Jacob the Rothschild. Uh so this is is no question. This is they have (laughs) cheap. To the extent that they have shaped Europe and America and by extension the world, this is their, uh, their planet. The, uh, the, the money lending, the perpetual debt, the degeneracy, the endless wars, uh, that's, that's what they have brought about. So it's not, uh, it would not be inaccurate to call this planet, planet Rothschild in a political sense. But there are, but there are, there are some holdouts. When you understand that, then you begin to understand some of the tension we see in the world today. There's some uh, people who are bucking back against this thing, particularly Russia and China.
0: Absolutely. Even though, even though, even our own. Well, even watching the Republican debate last night, it is so obvious, so obvious that everybody on that stage, well, except for one. That is still within the, the, the puppeteer's range, but at least he's calling it like it is. He's the only candidate that doesn't want to go to war, World War Three, and that's Rand Paul. But we can talk about that later. But this is the Rothschild name. It's probably the most famous or, or actually notorious, rather, name that we have around. Take us back. To 1763. Because well, I like to do, I like to go in chronological order, even though it's going to be impossible to discuss everything because you have over 700 pages in your in your two volumes. But take us back to 1763, the birth of the New World Order and the establishment of the Rothschild Banking Dynasty. But actually, I think it begins in 1743, isn't it?
1: Well, it, it began with uh, Moses Bauer, who later changed the family name to uh, Rothschild. And he was a goldsmith. And what these fellows used to do back in the day is they would store people's gold, charge a fee, and then they'd start lending it out, make compound interest. Uh, but by the time, uh, Moses' son, uh, came on the scene, the Rothschilds were already very, very wealthy. Uh, and, and then they, they branched out into five different countries, the, uh, the brothers. Um, but it is—it's really—it's—it's it's incredible how quickly they were able to accumulate so much wealth. I mean, we're talking within a 20, 30-year period, they had already become the most immensely wealthy, or one of the most immensely wealthy banking families in uh, in Europe. And how did they do that? Yeah. Uh, how, how, well, uh, how did they do that? That's the magic. That's the magic of compound interest. It's—it's it's something people don't understand. But I mean, once you get that. I mean, have you ever heard of the rule of seventy-two? I don't. You ever? I used oh, to.
0: Oh, absolutely! Work, but uh, only, only, that, only with so. only with usury, that could only happen.
1: Well, that's yeah, that's right. That's how they made their fortune. And and you know, back in the day, you you'd lend money to ignorant people at rates like fifteen, twenty, twenty-five percent. You just multiply, multiply. And then you expand into lending money to princes and principalities and governments. And you know, you, you have the force of the law backing you up so you know you're gonna collect. You know, back in the day if you didn't pay your debts you'd go to debtors' prison. So um it just became immensely wealthy as moneylenders always have since the since this abominable practice uh began. And then and then from the wealth they branched out into uh political power. Um so by the time eighteen hundred rolls along uh, well, Nathan Rothschild, especially in Britain, he's probably the biggest man uh, in Britain. And this is before the Napoleo- Napoleonic Wars, which ultimately multiplied his fortune <clears throat> even more. And you'll know, in the very beginning of my book, I um, I talk about a movie, a Hollywood film, that was put out in 1934 called The House of Rothschild. It starred uh, Loretta Young, Boris Karloff, uh, some you know Frankenstein, famous, wasn't he? Famous. Well that's right. Yeah, but in this film he put he portrayed a Russian a Prussian that is Prussian German uh count. <laughs> and they made him look like Frankenstein too, which is not a coincidence, you know. So they even back then uh because Germany was already under Hitler so already in 1934 they were putting out the sort of propaganda. But it was it's, it's interesting that a film like that was made in Hollywood and the film portrayed the Rothschild in a sympathetic way. But at the same time, uh, it made it clear how wealthy Nathan Rothschild and his brothers were and how influential they were. And it depicts all of the uh, the warring parties of the coalition wars against Napoleon, uh, quite literally begging Rothschild for, for, for finance. So this is a Hollywood film that confirms what, uh, what you and I would be called, quote, anti-Semites for but this is put out by Jewish Hollywood, so they're almost boasting about the power of the House of Rothschild. Um, so that, that's when they, they really came into their own, right around this time, the late 1700s, French Revolution, uh, when all of these secret societies were, were, were coming forth. And I go into, into the series Planet Rothschild, how they are the power behind these subversive movements. They provide the money and, and the organization, but they stay many layers above this, so you can never really trace anything directly back to them. You just have to discern the pattern. Um, when I look, when I look that's that's
0: at the effect. at the history of the United States, Mike, I think it's a 222 or 21. Out of the 239 years of our existence, 93% of, of our history has always been fighting at war. Only a few years at peace, like 21 years, I think it is. Do you think the Rothschilds are behind all these wars?
1: Well, um, they the the earliest trace of this would be the American Civil War. And this came as quite a surprise to me when I was doing my research because it wasn't as if I put this book together based on all the knowledge I have and and let me just collect it all. In the process, I began going deeper and deeper, and I learned a lot of things that I did not know. And I make the convincing, overwhelming case in the book that the Rothschild hands was involved in splitting up the North and the South and fomenting the American Civil War. Um, you know, another thing I learned was all of the assassinations of the uh, of the 1900s. I had no idea, and it's really amazing. I list them all in the book. How many kings, queens, prime ministers, princes, presidents were killed by these fanatical uh, anarchists in service of the uh, of the New World Order? So they they were able to get to anyone. So you you have all these people who are willing. I mean, these are like fanatics, sort of like maybe some of the the fools who fight for ISIS or something like that. They, they're true believers, but they don't understand the big hand that's manipulating them. So that was another thing I learned. But back to your question about the American wars, um, the biggest man in the Confederacy was not Jefferson Davis. He was nom- nominally the president, but he relied heavily, in fact it's clear to me that he was manipulated by Judah Benjamin, who served as attorney general and later as secretary of state and also secretary of war. He was the biggest man in the South. He had his, he had his uh, picture on Southern Confederate bonds as well as uh, Southern currency. And Judah Benjamin was a, a, uh, the first Jewish senator He's from Louisiana. And he met with Rothschild. And I quote from letters that the, uh, uh, one of the Rothschilds wrote back to his brother Lionel in, in London saying we should support the Confederacy. And I met some of the Jews of the South and I was so impressed with Judah Benjamin and on and on. But I mean, it's a long story, but there, there, there's no question the Rothschilds sought to split up the North and the South and eventually, uh, put a central bank in each one. So that's, um, that's, that was really their first major move into American politics and dragging us into wars. And then you see the same pattern of the New World Order movement uh, manipulating us and benefiting from the, uh, the phony war with Spain in 1898. We talked about that the last time we were on your show. And World War I and World War II and the war on terror and, and on and on it goes. Um, you know, It becomes more obvious in the 20th century. But the big surprise for me, and I, I think your readers will be intrigued by this, is the degree that the Rothschilds were involved in supporting um, the South.
0: By the way, I'm going to be jumping around just because there's so much information to cover, and I have to make references every so often. You're talking about the Civil War, but just before that, the the Louisiana Purchase, and a lot of people just don't know this, but uh, Napoleon sold it to, to us because... He needed money to fight his wars in Europe, but he didn't want to go to the bankers to ask for money. Is that the reason?
1: That's right. And 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 this is uh, this is very interesting too. The the parallels between Napoleon and Hitler, and I mean that as you know in a good way. Uh, Napoleon right. was very much against usury. I mean, he was passing edicts against money lending, and freeing people of their debt burdens. And the Jewish moneylenders to this day, they refer to that as the infamous decree.
0: They're very bitter over this. They felt that you give, give some it. Give some specifics of what made him get all the way to that uh, infamous decree. All the things that he had to do, which to me sounded fair. Well,
1: that's right. I mean, Napoleon was. I mean, the paradox of Napoleon is that he, he lusted for power and empire, but the motive to me was not one of uh you know a megalomaniac. He 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 sought to enshrine the ideals of the French Revolution. Now the French Revolution was run by these proto uh pre-communist Jacobins, but in terms of the ideals that they pretended to stand for about equal opportunity, liberty, equality, fraternity, what Napoleon embodied was was the true I- I- ideal. And He believed in freedom, he believed he was against the feudalist system, he believed in the rule of law, uh, that it should also apply to kings and and emperors, so it was a different style of monarchy. Um, But he was very much against the oppression of the common man, excuse me, of the common man through usury. So he's totally against money lending. And he uh, there's some really strong quotes in my book about what Napoleon said about the in private letters about the Jews and their money-lending practices. So he sought to put a stop to that. And then when he needed money to finance the numerous coalition wars that were imposed upon him, uh, he refused to borrow money again. And and one of the techniques that he used to raise money was the Louisiana Purchase. So we, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson pick, picked up a whole lot of real estate and he got a really good bargain on it.
0: And some of the things that he did, for example, if I remember correctly from reading the book, that he allowed lending, a as long as it did not go beyond any debt that was beyond or higher than ten percent, he would cancel. To uh, what else did he uh, uh, debt to minors? He canceled. So it was a, a fair deal, in my opinion.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, everything Napoleon did in terms of his laws and the codes that he put together with the team of uh, uh, scholars and the lectures he put together always had in mind to uplift the condition of the common man. And I have another book out that's actually going to be coming out in January. And it's pretty much of it is already contained in Planet Rothschild, but I I call it I the title will be Napoleon versus the Old and New World Orders. Because that's essentially what he was doing. He represented a break with the old monarchy mentality of the past where the king is the absolute monarch that does whatever he wants. Uh, no, he believed in a rule of law and that would bind even him. Yet at the same time, he is not to be confused with these Rothschild-funded Jacobin, murderous red revolutionaries of the of the French Revolution. So he was fighting both of them. The, the Jacobins were opposed to Napoleon, and the Rothschild masters were opposed to Napoleon. But so were the old monarchies of Europe, who you know kind of wanted to maintain that old status quo of, of elitism and privilege. So that put Napoleon in everybody's crosshairs, uh, but especially the Rothschild. And Rothschild spent a ton of money. It would have been impossible to carry out. There were seven coalition wars against Napoleon, seven wars. There were a few months break or a few years break in between, and then it would start again. And it was always the British were at the head of this coalition. And by the time they got to the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh coalition, it was Rothschild money was carrying the day. So Rothschild um, took down Napoleon with his money, while the British and the old Prussian and Austrian and Russian empires did it with uh, their manpower. Uh, but that was the first uh, major threat to the, this, this whole New World Order Illuminati business that was beginning to um, proliferate at the time it was the rise of Napoleon. He had to be put down.
0: So when we think of monarchies, uh, that's probably, as you say, the old world order, and the new world order is simply the Rothschilds. So what relationship, if you look at today's world, what relationship do today's monarchies have with the Rothschilds? Because you have the, the British monarchy, you have, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, you have Jordan, you have all these, uh, in Euro- all these kings and queens in Europe. What is the relationship then with the Rothschilds? Are they just simply puppets?
1: At, at this point, the, the arrangement is, okay, we'll let you keep the trappings and the illusions of the monarchy and all your fancy toys and money. Uh, just stay out of politics. And so that's kind of, kind of, that's kind of how it works. Because, you know, on paper, if the Queen of England wanted to assert herself, she could do things, you know, she could dissolve parliament. I mean, but they haven't done that in a hundred years and, and they know who the real bosses are. So the monarchies, you know, they don't want to end up like the Tsar Nicholas and his family, uh, shot down like bogs in, in some basement by a bunch of Jewish Bolshevik revolutionaries. They don't want to end up like King Louis being guillotined. So they, they not only don't involve themselves in, in politics, they don't even talk about it. So, you know, they're, they're pretty much utterly useless at
0: this point. So symbolic. So the, a <laughs> yeah. tourist attraction. I, I, he,
1: Exactly. I mean, even the old monarchs, as imperfect as they were, they generally tried to do the best for, for, for the people. And if they, if they, you know, if they messed up, maybe it was because they're too out of touch or something, but they, they, they did their best and sometimes they did good, sometimes they did bad. But today's monarchs, uh, they don't talk politics. I mean, the last one I could think of of any significance who dabbled into the political world was, uh, King Edward. Uh, during the 1930s. He was very pro-Hitler. He praised his accomplishments. And he, um you know, he, he expressed his frustration. Why is Britain in such a dire situation? And Germany is doing so well. And they got rid of him. They made some scandal up because he was marrying a divorced American woman. Right. They forced him out. Uh But that was, that's probably the last time you saw a, a, a monarch, um, uh, wander off into the political world and, you know, you saw how they took him down. And that was well, I guess, a failed, assa- failed assassination attempt.
0: To. Right. Uh, but I guess you're referring to mostly monarchies in Europe, but what about these monarchies in, let's just pick on the Middle East, you know, uh, Dubai, take uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Jordan. What about them? They they rule their countries with an iron fist.
1: Well, inter- internally they do. Uh, Externally, they have their limits and that explains why you will never hear Saudi Arabia utter a word about the predicament of the poor Palestinians in, in Israel. So that's kind of the deal they made there. so uh, you can have absolute power at home, uh, just shut up about Israel. So, you know, even those monarchs are sold out. Uh, that, that little twerp King of Jordan, I mean, he's, you know, he's another one. Palestine's right there, practically on his border. The suffering's right under his nose there's at least a million Palestinian refugees in his own country um but you know they won't say uh, a word and uh so ultimately um you know they're all they're all under control i, I mean you could probably on one hand mean the countries of this world that are partially free of this new world order control and i don't even include russia in that totally because you know it's not like putin is an almighty dictator there is a ruling class in Russia. There's still a lot of these characters left over from the Yeltsin years. They're, they're, they're liberals, and they work against Putin subtly. So even in the countries that are breaking free of this globalist system, uh, it's not that easy for them. Putin's got his own internal problems. There's people that try to undermine him at every turn. Uh, Russia has a federal central bank that was imposed on them by America and they still exist, and they control their own, the monetary uh, policy. Putin doesn't control the monetary policy. So, um, you know, they've got their hooks into every country on this planet, including the ones that are breaking away. You know what I'm saying?
0: What's happening in, and I don't mean to digress, but it's part of the conversation, what's happening in, the, in that area of the world, uh, these wars are by proxy. You know, I don't have to... Claim that I don't know. Look at ISIS, a creation of the United States, probably England, probably Saudi Arabia, uh, Israel, and so on. To 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 make rise of the new Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda revisited. When in fact these soldiers are probably Iraqis that lost their job after we invaded in 2003. We needed to feed them. Well, let's create a new boogeyman, and now we're going to have these eternal wars. What's happening in that area of the world? Do you think Putin? Is playing part of a game, or does he really know that it's our creation and he wants to just stand strong against any world order?
1: Oh, he knows, he knows. And you know, it's interesting. A lot of times, people send me questions by email. You know, is Putin in on it. How come he doesn't say this? How come he doesn't do that? And you know, it's sort of like the movie The Godfather, where you you see the big mafia players. Uh, playing along, yet at the same time in the back of their head, they're, they're already thinking how they're going to kill the other guy. Um, but I look, I put more, I assign more importance to things like the, the leaflets that Russian airplanes have been dropping all over Syria. They're dropping leaflets. and At tomatobubble.com, I have a picture up. Um, it shows an ISIS fighter with a little dial type mechanism sticking out of his back, like a automatic wooden soldier or something. And that dial is a very white little American dial. And the hand that is turning that dial to make the ISIS fighter go is an Israeli hand. You you see the sleeve has a star of David on it.
0: Oh yeah. I've seen that.
1: So this is what the Russians are dropping all over Syria in the hopes that some of these idiots on the ground who, uh, you know, see this, begin to realize that they're just being played, I guess. Um So, clearly, Russia understands this. And if you watch RT News, um, you, you'll see very, very clear hints uh, of this. But, you know, not in the public face that Putin puts on, you know, he, he might not go that far and say that because that's, you know, diplomacy. But there, there's no doubt. I, I mean, really, how hard is it to figure out that ISIS... Is an invented boogeyman of Israel, U.S., Turkey, and so on. And and the the purpose is to get rid of Assad. That's, it's that simple. They're fighting for the overthrow of Syria's Assad. And to that, to that end, they're being used to entice the U.S., France, the U.K. to come into Syria under the pretext of quote unquote fighting ISIS. Uh, But in reality, it's it's to drop bombs on Syrian installations and to further destabilize the country. The target is Assad, plain and simple.
0: Well, there's no doubt that's been happening for for years now. But you mentioned RT, and you obviously know former Putin aide, the founder of RT Television Network, was found dead recently. You know that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Three weeks ago, in his hotel room, I believe he was in his 50s. Uh, you know, they just found him of a, a so-called heart attack. And, and you know, when, when you understand how much the Western elites despise RT News, um, you know, you, you have to ask your question. The question here is, you know, what what really happened? I mean, assassinations are very rarely are they bullets to the head. That's a bit too obvious. People start asking questions. You know, the sophisticated techniques used today to induce. Heart
0: attacks, Heart cancer, attacks,
1: or, or even cancer—sure. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's some things we know, and there's things we could logically infer. And I logically infer with 90% probability that the found, this founder of RT News was, was assassinated.
0: It's But but with, that, with with what's happening in the Middle East right now, and the with Russia's participation, what in the world was he doing in, in a Washington DC hotel anyway? I.
1: You know, I, I don't know. I mean, he founded RT. I don't know if he is still one of the top executives. That might explain it, because don't they broadcast out of America? Uh, they have all.
0: Well, they do. They do. But, you know, what a great place the Hornets has to be killed.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I tell you, if I was anyone in Putin's circle, I sure wouldn't be uh, visiting the U.S. or Europe. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's a case of him underestimating just how serious this thing is getting, although lately, and I mean lately as in just the last few weeks, I'm really getting the sense that, you know, uh, Russia knows that this thing is pretty, almost inevitable that we're on a collision course.
0: (sighs) And I hope it doesn't happen that way, but it seems to be the case. Uh, You know, there's only so much we can poke the bear before the bear becomes disagreeable. But I've been saying this for for months now, that what I see happening in that part of the world, I'm not going to digress, but it's all interconnected with the Rothschilds anyway. But what I see there for years, Israel, of course, they want to expand their territory. They have the Golan Heights. Well, they've had their own scientists find oil. So what a great thing to do. You destabilize your neighbor. You kill thousands and thousands of people and make a lot of them emigrate to other countries. Now they're vacant. All you have to do is create a, a war there. Just like the you know what happened in the nineteen sixties and seventies. Take more land, take the Golan Heights, take a few cities. All you need to do is just bring the bulldozers and it's already vacant. Just voila.
1: Yeah. Well how convenient that these territories that are being uh, emptied out of people, I mean mass migrations here uh they, they 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 fall in the the realm of what is envisioned as as greater israel
0: exactly my point you need
1: to understand, i mean you you look at the israeli flag okay and there it is right in your face there there is a geopolitical historical lesson in that flag those two blue lines this is universally believed throughout the arab world uh and it's also been demonstrated in like Israeli literature and things like that. Those two blue lines represent the Nile River, which is uh, in Egypt, near Egypt, on the eastern part of Egypt. I mean, and then the other blue line is the Euphrates, which is Iraq, and it's right there in the uh, their Old Testament. That is the so-called Promised Land, the land between the two great rivers. And it's it's spelled out right there in Genesis, Leviticus, and this is. Yeah, it doesn't matter if they're religious Jew or secular Jew. This is, this is like a cultural mindset. The two land between the two great rivers. And those are those two blue lines on the flag and everything in between it is the Jewish state. And in order to achieve that, you're going to need to take a big chunk of Syria and a big chunk of Iraq. What does ISIS stand for? Islamic state in Iraq in Syria. How convenient as the old church lady of Saturday night Life, fame would say. So um, you understand the Israeli flag and things begin to make a whole, a whole lot of sense. If that region gets blown up, you'll see a continued depopulation of those, uh, those areas. Because remember, without World War I, there is no Jewish immigration or, or large-scale Jewish immigration to the land of Palestine, okay? Just prior to World War I, you're looking at maybe 5% of the people were Jewish. And then without World War II, there is no partition and state of Israel, which came two years after the end of World War II. So big wars have a funny way of redrawing uh, borders, because once everything is blown up, the masters of the universe come in, and they just recreate borders. So in order to achieve this vision, it is going to take a major blow-up.
0: Well, you know— wh- Let me go to Madagascar in a few moments. And a lot of people are going to say, Why are you talking about Madagascar here? I'll talk to you about that in a moment. (laughs) Or. Or Patagonia and Argentina. But let me go back to what we're talking about, the greater Israel, which is all the way coming from the Bible, the interpretation. That's why in the United States, the the very right-wing Christian is always standing behind them all the time because they take the Bible as the true interpretation. The Bible contains three geographical definitions of the land of Israel and basically comprises all modern-day Israel, the Palestinian territories, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq. Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Oman, Yemen, and most of Turkey. Do you see that ever happening?
1: Um, I, I don't know if it goes a bit well. Some of those countries you named, it would be partial territories, not the whole of Saudi Arabia, not the whole of Turkey. Borders. Um, yeah, nice nice little pieces, but mainly Iraq and Syria, nice chunk of Saudi Arabia in the north. And then uh, peace of Egypt only up until the uh, to the now. Well, you know what? It seems incredible to even contemplate. But again, what do we learn from history? If someone would have told you in um, 1914 that five years from now the the, Ger- uh, the German Empire is gone, Austria-Hungarian Empire is gone, split up into a bunch of different countries, Turkey's gone. I, I mean, these were dynasties. went back centuries, you would not have believed it, okay? Uh, If someone had told you before, say, World World War II, what, what the world was going to look like in just four years, you couldn't imagine it. So if you're talking about a major regional war, possibly world war, anything is possible. That is the mindset you have to put yourself into. Uh So would this stuff come about on, it, on its own just by little political arrangements and incremental pro- progress? You know, it's, that seems impossible. But if, if you think about the implications of a war between major powers, anything is possible after that. And I think that's what that's – I think the Zionists are thinking along those lines as well. And that's the great danger here.
0: Well, doesn't the British Empire have a lot to do with what's happening here, because the plan was, and, and, and Hitler was part of it too, with the transfer agreement, and when we think of the final solution, was the final solution to kill all the Jews, or to help them find a homeland?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting, no, the you know, they love to take one little quote, final solution that the Germans talked about to the to Jewish question, and then, you know, fill in the blank and create a false narrative around that. The final solution was, was to find them a homeland. And you know, I I you know I, I like to watch a lot of the enemy's propaganda, and I, I have to dig this up somewhere. But there, there's a film I saw, uh, phone, you know, on the phony Holocaust. So it's a Jewish film, and it's just full of lies and propaganda, of course. But in this film, there's a woman saying, "When we first arrived at Auschwitz." we were so happy because, you know, we thought that eventually we were going to Madagascar. So, I mean, there was actually a degree of excitement among some of the Jews when they got wind of this Madagascar plant. Uh, It didn't last long because then the British took over Madagascar from the French, who had already made their peace with Germany. Uh, But that was... um,
0: That was the goal. Explain that. Even in the 1880s, that rumor was circulating that Madagascar was going to be the... The, the Jewish homeland.
1: Well, at varying... And there was also a movement to relocate them in parts of Uganda and Kenya, which were under the British jurisdiction. Right. And, and you know, and these are larger territories, rich, fertile land. I mean, it could have made it into a paradise, you know. Uh, but no, no. we got to have Palestine. Palestine, Palestine, Palestine. And, and whatever the British or anybody else would, like, suggest to them or offer them, uh, you know, they didn't want to hear it. And... I, I think a lot of it has to do with the centralized location. It, it's probably it's probably just as much about location, 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 as they say in real estate, as it is about any kind of religious or cultural thing about having uh, Palestine. Uh, because if you you know if you, you look at a map of the world, a flat map of the world, you know I, ideally if you're going to rule the world, you want it to be centrally located, and there they are, right there at the hub. In between Africa, Europe, Asia, so um, they could they could have had their homeland without any bloodshed without having to without having to cleanse any of the native Arab populations there uh, you know Madagascar would have been beautiful I mean and you know how large Madagascar is it it It's a oh yeah,
2: Britain <laughs> you know
0: uh, and they't have uh, <laughs> they don't have to share any border with any enemy what, so-called enemy countries.
1: Yeah, that's right. But uh and it's interesting that the British made it a point. Um, I mean, you know, they had their hands full because they're fighting Germany. And here they are going all the way down there to take Madagascar from the French. It was called the Battle of Madagascar in 1942. And they, they won control of the island. And, you know, it, it wasn't something that the Germans were going to go and, like, really fight for at that point, you know. So it so then... Uh, yeah, that was the end of the Madagascar plan. But you you almost wonder. I mean, the ostensible purpose of the British taking Madagascar was uh it would be like a good base to use for their operations against you know Japan because they went the war with Japan after Pearl Harbor. But I don't know if that holds up. That reason holds water because if you look at a map, that's awfully far away from Japan. You know, they could they could, they could just had their bases in Australia. So I, I, I suspect that they made this wartime diversion of resources, taking Madagascar, which might not seem like a, a wise decision when you're in the middle of a war to divert resources. But, uh, if you're, if you're aiming to block the Madagascar plan, you know, then the battle of Madagascar begins to make more sense.
0: Well, you think of the Falkland Islands too. look at where they are, but that's a different story. But, you know, this is not in your book, but I have to ask you. You've heard about the Patagonia, you know, the this, the southern part of of Chile and Argentina. That basically, it's so vast, and it's uh, scarcely populated. It's rich in in resources. It shares, you know, the the Pacific in one side, the the the, the Atlantic on the other side. And there's this concerted effort, according to my friend Adrian Salbucci, that what they want that's a they want a, a second refuge refuge for the jews in the future if something happens with israel or not
1: yeah you know i've heard that i'm not very well steeped in that i know sabuch is very knowledgeable uh, uh respect his research immensely uh, so that you know not would not surprise me at all in fact you would expect that they would have to have some kind of plan plan b if everything blows up and Israel, you know, comes comes under some kind of assault or attack, it's only the size of New Jersey. You know, so if hell all hell breaks loose, uh, it could be a very dangerous place to be. So uh, something like a Patagonia scheme does seem like a viable plan B. Um, others, have, others have said, you know, Crimea and parts of Ukraine are, are uh, might fulfill that role as well. Because, as you know, the majority of Jews today are not the Jews of the Old Testament. They're actually converts uh, from the old Khazarian Empire, which would be like 300 right. or nine hundred A.D., and that was based right there, Ukraine, Crimea, uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, I, w- I would imagine that they 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 always have they all o- they always have an escape route. <laughs> this goes back millennium, you know.
0: And people don't question yeah. that when you look at the 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 composition of the. The average Israeli today, what is it, uh, less than 87% is Semite, and it's usually Eastern European, so all these crypto... It's
1: really astonishing. I mean, how how do you lay... First of all, the the idea that you could lay claim to land that your ancestors held 2,000 years ago, that on itself is kind of dubious after a while I mean, what are we going to do? We're going to give Manhattan back to the uh, Manhattan Indians, you know what I mean? That's right. So that itself is like a dubious claim. But even if you give merit to such a claim, that because your ancestors were here 2,000 years ago, you have the right to go there and kick kick out the new people, uh, ignoring the fact that the Bible says the original Hebrews kicked out the people who were there before them. What was that, the Canaanites or something? So That's I, right. I guess we should find their descendants and give them Palestine. But even if you accept that logic, just for the sake of argument, the fact of the matter is there are three ethnic, uh, groups that constitute modern day Jewry. One would be the ancient, uh, you know, Babylonian Jews of the Old Testament, the ones who were dispersed under the Roman Empire. They're the smallest minority. Another one would be what they refer to as the Sephardic Jews or the Spanish Jews. And the, There were massive conversions in North Africa, like about three hundred or four hundred A.D. So these are the latter. The latter are the
0: the the latter are the Sephardic. The former are you referring to the Ashkenazis?
1: Well, no. The the first group would have been the original ones, the Babylonian ones. Okay. Okay. The ones from the Bible. The second group come four hundred years after. They were never in Palestine. Those would be North North African converts. Sephardics. and they mixed. some of them are more white, some of them have a little olive tinge to their skin. those are the ones that arrived in Spain and were later kicked out, but they're converts of uh they're they not the original Jews from Judea. they never set foot in Judea it was just Sephardics.
0: And then uh, the yeah, th- think of there, think of Freddie Mercury, who was a Jew from Yemen. think of that
1: right well, you know what if he's from Yemen he might have he might have been descended from the original Babylonian ones because when they scattered, they stayed around that area. But these would be the ones who went mainly to Spain and Portugal with the Moors and all that, Tunisia. Those are Sephardics. Um, But the only original ones are the Babylonian ones, and they're the smallest minority, probably single-digit. And then the largest one, which I haven't talked about yet, is the Kazarians, and those are the ones from Eastern Europe, and they're a mixed, they're a whole mixed bag, you know. Some got blonde hair, red hair, blue eyes, even. Uh I, And this conversion took place like eight or nine hundred. And it is a fact. And Sephardic Jews sometimes complain about this, and some of the original Jews in Israel, that the Kazarians, lord, they lord over the place. They are the ruling class, and they discriminate, discriminate against the Sephardics and some of the uh, the more olive-skinned Jews. So when you think of all of world jewelry. the bulk of it, and certainly the overwhelming percentage of the leadership are descended from Khazars who converted in 800. So how, on the basis of a conversion, do you lay claim to lands that your ancestors never even set foot in? It would be like me converting to Buddhism and then showing up in Tibet and saying, all right, everybody get out of here. This is my, <laughs> my land.
0: And by the way, Freddie Mercury was born in Zanzibar. That's where I, I, I missed the countries. Zanzibar.
1: Okay, okay. So uh, you know that's 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 the that's the joke of it all. But these these conversions are, are matters of historical uh, fact. So you know the Jews the Jews are mixed. You know it's 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 not. I mean it's 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 different peoples in different areas over different periods of time.
0: Uh, and why do they call it? Converted? I have to ask. Why do they call it? And again, this conversation, folks who are listening, I know I have a lot of Jews who are listening to us, who subscribe to us, and I really appreciate it. I consider many of you my friends. I'm ma- mostly talking about the history of all of this. This is absolutely in no way trying to to to, to perpetuate any hate towards you at all. I mean look at my other radio program. A lot of my guests are all Jewish and I love what they have to say. So please do not blanket do not issue a blanket statement over me or Mike for basically just showing you some information that we have found factual history, you know and historically here.
1: Yeah, I, I would definitely echo those sentiments and, and it's interesting and it's a little sad. From time to time I'll I'll get an email from a Jewish reader and <laughs> I guess they think of me as a terrorist. Same here. I've had more I've had more than a few of them say how isolated they feel amongst their families and, and, and communities. It's like almost like a pariah that they, they look at them. And uh yeah, that must be very hard because I mean I know how hard is it just as a regular American to, to, to be out of sync with everybody else. So you can imagine what it is uh, you know, for some of these Jewish folk who have come around to see the light about what their so called leadership is all about.
0: Uh exactly. And I we're guys, talking about yeah. let's say the Freemasonic Zionist supremacist. That's pretty much the label I would like to use.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or I guess another good analogy I like to use is mafia. I'll say the Jewish mafia. True. true. And one could say, well you know, just because we prosecute and try to shut down the Italian mafia doesn't make one anti Italian. Correct. You know <laughs>
0: Same principle here. I remember in the in the 80s, if you were Colombian living in in Miami, for example, a lot of people were yeah. m- mocking the Colombians there, saying, "Oh, you, your dad is probably a drug dealer." You know, it was very offensive. But you know, in in our history, with Italians, with Polish, with Irish, we had Irish slaves here, and nobody talks about that. But here's another historical fact: On May 11, 1812, Britain Prime Minister Percival was assassinated just before he is to make peace with the U.S. Mike, I guess peace is a no-no. John F. Kennedy wanted to get us out of Vietnam. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin killed in November of ninety-five. He wa- he wanted peace, killed by his own people. Do you see that common denominator throughout history? Peace is not profitable for the bankers.
1: No, that, that, that that's true. Uh, th- there's other other cases as well. I talk about uh, what they did to Neville Chamberlain. Uh, Neville okay. Chamberlain was not assassinated uh, physically. But politically, he was—they uh, had the knives out for him. And what was his great sin? He never really wanted to go to war, even though he was prime minister when the war was declared. It was one of those things where he was like maneuvered into a spot. Uh, but even when the war started, it's clear to me that Chamberlain, the so-called appeaser—God, I hate that term—you <laughs> uh, know—was looking for a way out, and his own party forced him out. Uh, McKin- McKinley did not want the Spanish American War. That was imposed upon him by the warmongers in his party in the Yellow Press. So he ended up being, uh, uh, well, he was assassinated, but we already had gone to war anyway. But still, there was, McKinley had a rebellion on his hands, just like Neville Chamberlain was in his own party. Uh, they were going to get rid of him. So, you see this. You see this pattern, you know, if if you stand up for peace, if the Rothschilds say they want war and you stand for peace, uh, they can kill you or they can squeeze you out uh, politically. More recently, we see this with Berlusconi in Italy, who was very close to Vladimir Putin. He was uh, so close that their families used to vacation together. It was a a personal close as well as a political one. And the State Department, you know, had the knives out for them, and the CIA activated all their flash mobs and their Italian press agents. And, you know, they made up some scandal out of nothing, and uh, Berlusconi was forced out. Um, so, you know, you, you see this again and again and, and, and again. It's, you know, you get into a position of political power, it is very hard to resist these these forces.
0: You know, for the license we we're talking about, Money Now, for the life of me, Mike, when I look at our history and see how our own first elected president, Washington, heard Hamilton and Jefferson's proposal regarding the the banking system, how could anyone prefer to give control to a privately owned? Everybody thinks of the Federal Reserve as the first time. And no, this has happened before in our history. How could anyone prefer to give control to a privately owned central bank, which creates money out of thin air and then lends it back to the government at interest, as opposed to having our own treasury issue our own debt-free currency? Why was Washington duped by Hamilton? Well, I mean, we, we don't
1: have access to the amount of data that we do today, thanks to things like the Internet and things like that. So some of this we kind of got to uh, fill in the blanks. Um, you the only thing I suspect you know, is, is that there is a – on this subject of monetary policy, so, so many people, even like very intelligent, great-minded people, they, they kind of don't get it. Um, but it, you know, this isn't physics or rocket science. It's a lot easier than you might think. I, I, I think maybe Washington went along with Hamilton because he was a very articulate, persuasive, brilliant man seemed like he knew what he was talking about. Perhaps monetary policy was not Washington's area of expertise. Um, So he went along with that idea of a national bank with a 20-year charter. Maybe he's thinking, well, if it doesn't work out in 20 years, we just kill it. Uh, I don't know. But definitely Jefferson was uh, opposed to this. And Madison was not crazy about the idea either. And it was Madison who was president after the first central bank's 20-year charter.
0: Who didn't renew it?
1: Came to, right, he, he, he didn't renew it. And, uh, and then the British went to war with us. And I, I don't believe those two events are coincidental. And although we prevailed in the war, it was very soon after the war, Matt Madison kind of changed gears and then we went with the French, second Central Bank of America for another 20 years. And then Andrew Jackson killed that, but he didn't just kill, he put a stake through its heart and it never rose again until 1913. And uh, there were two failed assassination attempts on Andrew Jackson. Now they want to get him off the $20 bill and put the, what do you want to put on there? Rosa Parks or something like that? <laughs> it's just ridiculous.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, not to take credit from Rosa Parks, but let's go back to, to Hamilton for a moment. Uh, another traitor like Woodrow Wilson, in my opinion. Uh, you know, you say he had many enemies and he finally messed with the wrong guy. Who was that guy who killed him?
1: Well, that was Aaron Burr, and uh, Aaron Burr was vice president. He was actually vice president at the time that he killed Hamilton right. in a
0: duel. In a duel, <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, but uh, and it was illegal, wasn't it? Wasn't it illegal duels at the time in that area? Yeah,
1: they were they were already illegal at that time. So, there but it was very rare. You know, they were still practiced him on the down low, and it, it, you know, if you got killed, if your family member got killed in a duel, it's not like you were going to go rat out the other guy. It was like an honor thing, mm. but. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were illegal, but they still happened. so rarely. Um, but yeah, he was, um, you know, I, I mean, he was very offensive, abrasive, arrogant man. And he, uh, he worked tirelessly against Aaron Burr and also Jefferson because they had a different vision. These guys had a different vision of uh, America. They had the more that original libertarian like philosophy. Um, but John Adams referred to Hamilton as uh, an intriguer, something like an intriguer of the, the first rank. Very, but very lowly on him. A lot of people didn't like him, though. And he is a... Uh, I mean, the guy went to a Jewish school in the West Indies. He was British citizen, so that's why he could never become a president. Um, but, you know, that was... Um, I mean, he was he was a banker. He was a New York-London banker boy. And that that was like the... So right from the beginning, even though we won our independence from Britain, never quite totally. I mean, they, like I said earlier, about you see Russia breaking away, but at the same time, the the New World Order still has its clutches in it, and that's the way it was with America. Right from the beginning, so we were never quite totally free. There was always that presence. They always had their agents here. Uh, and I mean, it's almost like a like a virus, like a bacteria. If you don't exterminate it completely. It's, it, it keeps coming back,
0: you know. So, but regarding going back to, to all of this, there's there's a link between the American Civil War and a feud. That feud that Jefferson and Hamilton had. It seems that Hamilton, as you say, he was a London banker boy, and Jefferson wanted no part in European central banking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, Jefferson's vision was also of a very weak decentralized, you know, central government. And the the states were to be, in essence, individual countries in their own right that just collaborated in certain areas like trade, common defense, and so on. That was the Jeffersonian vision. And you could say that was the vision of the South. The the North's vision was more, you know, consolidation of power, industry. Um, So, you know, you always had this conflict from the beginning. But I do not believe that these differences were so severe, so insurmountable, that they should have led to the Civil War. Right. I believe it's more of a case that you had the controversy, you had the differences, but you also had agents, both in the North and the South.
0: stirring the pot.
1: Who, who, exactly. It's almost like if you have a you know a husband and wife that bicker a lot, but they still love each other and they have a lot in common. And then a the third party comes along and says, hey, you know, she's doing this, she said that. And you know, <laughs> exactly. you, you put that point it. Uh, so that, 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 that's how they played it. So there definitely were differences. And I've always been sympathetic to the South because, you know, my philosophy is, is more of the latter of the Jeffersonian view. Um, but you know, learning now how the Rothschilds played the situation and how someone, a total scumbag like Judah Benjamin could rise to the top of the Confederacy. You know, I, I can understand also the the spot that Lincoln was in because um and I even reproduced in Planet Rothschild I found an old newspaper article, Chicago Tribune, in the eighteen sixties. It was warning about how the Rothschilds were infiltrating American politics, supporting the South and supporting the uh uh certain Democrats in the in the north and they want to split America in half. they they ruled the monarchies of Europe now. Now the Rothschilds have got the. Cl- it was amazing, you know, to read this. So, um, so it's it's not it's not as simple now as you know the, the the South wanted their independence and the big mad North said no. It's a little more nuanced than that. Once the Rothschilds got in, in involved, and there were troublemakers in the North too, like um, you know, someone like a John Brown. Oh, okay. Slavery's got to go. That's great, but you know, you start arming slaves and killing innocent white settlers. I mean, the guy was a the guy was a lunatic, and you know, people like John Brown made it very difficult for the North and the South to ever come together at a table and say, "Let's iron this stuff out." So, uh, so yeah, both sides were played, and you know, I don't believe it should have come to that.
0: And it seems that that's the case, even as I was mentioning before, 93% of our history has been at war. And it's 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 a, a fact that it's not changing. And I always say it, peace is the biggest threat that they can have. And we have to take a one and only break. When we come back, I want to discuss more of what's happening today. Also, why did the Rothschild financial empire enable the independence of the USA? Because I think They enabled it. Did they have a vision that by allowing us to become independent, they would still own us anyway, and the profit potential would be much higher here than just simply in Europe? The two books, incredible, incredible information. Planet Rothschild, The Forbidden History of the New World Order, Volume 1, covers from the year 1763, the right at the cradle of of the, the the. Rothschild Family to 1939, and Volume 2, all the way from World War II to Today. So let's see how much we can squeeze from Mike King when we come back. Mike, how can people buy these two volumes on all your other books on your website?
1: Well, you can go to tomatobubble.com, uh, and I would urge people to sign up for the uh, free updates that I send out. They'll, they'll see it any of the pages it's a free report called how to respond to an anti-conspiracy theorist you sign up for that free report pdf and you get on the mailing list and then you'll also see i have all the books advertised on on the site uh one can get pdf access it's all self-explanatory or you can follow the link it'll take you to amazon the amazon page is ms king and all my books are listed there
0: Yourself. But you go to tomatobubble.com, and it's very, very easy to navigate. Is D the, the one, the, uh, uh, what's his name, the one who creates the the uh, art? Is he the one that created for yours oh, as well?
1: Oh, the, the, the cover art of my books is uh, generally done by David Dees. Pretty
0: much David both. Dees, yes, yes. And yes. David Dees, if you're listening, I'm a fan of your work, and uh, I also would like to have you here to discuss what, what uh, you have a great way of channeling all this stuff that we talk about, but in a very visual way. And I, th- I think it's it's unparalleled the way you do it. At any rate, we have so much more to discuss with my king when we come back. This is Mel Thambergas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, USB Drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full-body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy!